The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain, stand, as we remain standing, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you transform our hearts? Would you fill them with your love? That we might be filled with you. That you might be honored. And that your love might abound in our lives for the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. So we spent the last few weeks making our way through one of Jesus' most famous sermons commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. It's in Luke's Gospel. And if you're familiar with the other Gospels, you will have noticed how similar it is to another of Jesus' sermons found in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. This is a little confusing. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee, while the Sermon on the Plain was given in a flat field in the same region. Now, scholars have scratched their heads over the nature of the relationship between these two sermons, which are at once so similar and yet significantly different. Over time, I've become increasingly convinced that these are two separate sermons given in different places at different stages in Jesus' ministry. They're similar, I think, because Jesus would often repeat himself when he taught adjusting his content based on audience and circumstances. So if you heard the same teaching twice, it would have been different enough to provoke or encourage you in new ways. Jesus begins his sermon on the plain with a barrage of unexpected blessings and woes. He blesses the poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated. He then pronounces woe on the rich, the satisfied, and the upwardly mobile. In a few short sentences, he turns our understanding of the world and how it works completely upside down. The truest blessing, he says, is to be part of God's kingdom and to be counted among his disciples, even if that is accompanied by struggle, strife, and poverty. Wealth, comfort, and status, on the other hand, They mean nothing if they're all you have. But Jesus continues to turn things upside down in the verses that follow. He exhorts his followers to love their enemies, not just their friends. And he instructs them to refrain from judging the actions of others until they have submitted their own behavior to the judgment of God. There's a sense of urgency in Jesus' words amplified by the direct and concise manner in which he speaks. And that continues in our passage this morning where he brings us to the heart of the matter, which is, in fact, the human heart. Having flipped our understanding of the world upside down, Jesus now turns us inside out. He wants us to know that he's not just concerned with what we do, 
but with what we love. For what we love, that which fills our hearts, determines our actions, and it shapes the course of our lives. So let's turn to our passage. You can find it on page 863. It's Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 43. It is short and very much to the point. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The teaching's straightforward. An apple tree, it produces apples. You can't grow grapes on a thorn bush. The type of fruit that a tree produces tells you what kind of tree it is. In the same way, the behavior of a person tells you what kind of person you're dealing with. Our words and our deeds, they reveal our true nature, which comes from the heart, the seed of our desires and affections. Yes, there are exceptions to these rules. There are silver-tongued snakes who make every appearance of being kind and thoughtful but are truly evil. And yes, good-hearted men and women occasionally lose their cool and say things they shouldn't. But these exceptions do not disprove the fundamental truth of what Jesus is saying, which is that the actions and the words of a person reveal the nature of their heart. The intent of Jesus' teaching, however, isn't to get us thinking about exceptions and about other people. He wants us thinking about ourselves. He wants to set us down in front of a mirror so that we will take stock of our own hearts because he wants us to be different. He wants us to learn the upside-down way of life to which he has called us. And the only way to do that is by turning us inside out. So I want to try to convince you of three truths this morning as we consider the implications of Jesus' teaching in these verses. These three truths taken together, they form a simple argument that lies at the core of our understanding of the gospel and leads us down the path to personal transformation. By contrast, failure to understand these truths leads to a life of spiritual immaturity stunted growth, and constant frustration. So here they are. Point number one, true change is a matter of the heart. Unfortunately, point number two, our hearts are fundamentally corrupt and unwilling to change. Because of this, point three, we need new hearts filled with new affections if we ever want to become the kind of people God is calling us to be. So we begin with the idea that true change is a matter of the heart. True change is a matter of the heart. And when we think about what it means for a person to change, what we tend to do is we focus on their actions. If your brother drinks too much, you want him to cut back or quit. If your daughter can't control her spending, You insist that she builds a budget and sticks with it. If you want to lose weight, you go on a diet and you change your eating patterns. 
If someone wants to become different, they change their behavior. But how many times has your brother tried to stop drinking? How many times has your daughter blown through that carefully crafted budget? How many times have you gone on a diet because you gained back the weight that you lost last year? If true change were fundamentally about modifying our behavior, then all that we would need to do is tweak how we do things, establish new disciplines, and develop some mechanism for measuring our progress. It wouldn't be all that hard to change. But we all know from experience that we don't change, we cannot change, simply by modifying our behavior. Don't get me wrong, I am all for the development of good habits and daily disciplines. They're important for me, and I am trying my best to instill these things in my children. But good habits and self-discipline aren't enough. True change only comes with a change of heart. So I have a friend who was taken advantage of in a business deal by a guy that he knew pretty well. Everything was legal, but the other guy was cagey about disclosing a few facts that impacted the long-term value of the deal. This was two decades ago. The men still interact in social settings, but the one who was wronged has never gotten over it. Whenever he gets a chance, he drops in negative comments about the other guy. He sometimes goes ever so slightly out of his way to sow mistrust among folks who are thinking of getting into business with him. He tends to blame him for other unrelated business problems. It's all pretty subtle, it's rarely overt, and it's entirely unhealthy. For two decades, this guy has harbored a grudge. He can't stop undermining the other guy because he can't get over it. He knows he needs to stop. He's a Christian man who wants to do what's right, but he can't because he refuses to deal with his heart. He just can't bring himself to forgive the other guy or to trust God with the situation. He won't pray for him. He tries not to think about him until, of course, he can't resist subtly throwing him under the bus. Nothing is going to change in his behavior, as he has proven, until he deals with his heart. As Jesus said in verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's just one example. It shouldn't be too hard to find one in your own life. Our words and our actions, they reveal what's really going on in our hearts. Now, of course, it is possible to fake it. Here in the South, we are remarkably adept at not showing what we feel or saying what we really think. We prize good manners and social stability, and so we, we say things we don't mean and we do things we don't believe in. All too often, good manners are just a mask worn by a malicious gossip, and public affirmation hides a seething anger beneath the surface. Now, we can fake it for a while or in certain settings, but our hearts always going to shine through. A thorn bush cannot grow grapes. No one is going to be fooled by plastic fruit. That's why when God looks at us, he looks at our hearts. 
when God sent Samuel uh, to anoint David as king of Israel, Samuel thought that David's oldest brother was a better candidate for the position. But God stopped him and he said to Samuel, he said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's our hearts that matter. And if we want to become the kind of people who love their enemies who pray for those who persecute them, who prefer poverty with Jesus over wealth without him, then we're going to need to deal with our hearts. But here's the problem, and it's point number two. Our hearts are corrupt. This is kind of a big problem. We need a change of heart, but our hearts are unwilling to change. Have you ever said something cruel about another person and wondered, where did that come from? Or or done something mean and been surprised at just how easy it was? The troubling truth about these kinds of behavior is that they represent who we truly are. They come from a deeper place than we want to admit. These aren't random acts of malice or signs that the devil is afoot. They are the instinctive actions of the human heart. In describing the life of an idolater, the prophet Isaiah said, a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah famously wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the Old Testament, the human heart is the control center of a person. It's the source of affection, the seat of personality, the power behind one's will. It's what we think of as heart, mind, and will all rolled into one. And... It's hopelessly corrupt, misguided, twisted around itself. This is a problem because it means we cannot trust our hearts. We cannot trust our hearts. Now, I want you to consider how we think about our hearts today in our Western culture and how that shapes our approach to understanding human behavior. So we live in a world that believes you are what you love. On the one hand, this statement is undeniably true and it's utterly biblical. On the other hand, it's profoundly deceptive and ultimately destructive. It's true in the sense that our actions are driven by our our affections. This is what Jesus is telling us in, in Luke 6 and what courses through all of the Old Testament teaching about the human heart. A good friend of mine describes it this way. He says, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Everything begins with our affections, our desires, our loves. It's what, it's what motivates us. This is what drives our actions and shapes our lives. You are indeed what you love. The statement is true as a diagnosis or description of the human condition. But this belief is ultimately destructive in our present cultural context 
because we've forgotten that our hearts are corrupt and easily deceived. We treat all kinds of love and every type of affection as equally true and good and right. And so we say things like, you be you, love is love, implying not only that any and every kind of love is equally worth pursuing, but that it is in fact our moral duty to pursue whatever it is that we love. Now we see the outworking of this ethic most prominently in in the chaos of contemporary sexuality, where almost everything isn't just permitted but encouraged. But we also see this far more subtly in what I think of as the adoration of authenticity. So over the last few years, I have noticed a trend among some of my Christian friends. And here are the symptoms. Regular, casual swearing. Unkind, off-the-cuff remarks that betray little thought and a lack of judgment. Drinking to excess. A lack of awareness of other people. Now, I realize that that list, it sounds a little prudish, None of these things seems like a particularly big deal on their own. But what disturbs me isn't solely the actions, it's the justification given for them. I am who I am. I'm just keeping it real. I refuse to fake it, I'm just being authentic. When you are what you love becomes an ethic rather than an observation about human nature, then being yourself becomes the highest form of worship. And that's the world we live in. And it's led many Christians, many of us, into believing that being authentic is part and parcel of being faithful to who God has made us to be. But that is to ignore the Bible's fundamental teaching about the human heart, which is that it is corrupt, deceptive, self-destructive. What we defend as being authentic is usually just the lazy self-justification of a person unwilling to acknowledge the corruption in his own heart. You are what you love. As I said, this statement is true as a a description of the human condition, but it's destructive as an ethical prescription. When we pursue every passing affection in an attempt to satisfy the longings of our hearts, we rocket down the road to self-destruction. What the world doesn't realize and what we struggle so hard to admit to ourselves is that our hearts, they're deceitful and they're corrupt. What this means is that the invitation to personal transformation that Jesus puts before us, it requires something far deeper and more profound than imposing a few good new habits. We may think about self-improvement in terms of behavior modification. Jesus thinks about it in terms of a heart transplant. And that leads us to point number three. If, point number one, true change is a matter of the heart, and if, point number two, our hearts are corrupt and cannot be trusted, then, point number three, we need new hearts, not just better behavior. 
if we want to live the lives that Jesus is calling to. Now, part of the good news of the gospel is that this is exactly what Jesus gives us when we put our trust in him. Back in the 6th century B.C., the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God's people had been disobedient. Their hard hearts had led them into idolatry. And so God allowed them to be conquered and carried off into exile. And there in Babylon, he sent them a prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel preached about the goodness of God's judgment, the need for repentance, the hope of of restoration. And through him, God made this promise to his people. Martha read it for us just a few moments ago. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Nearly 600 years later, after he had died and risen, conquering death in the grave, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he, spent, he sent his Holy Spirit to live within them. They waited and he delivered. And in doing so, Jesus fulfilled God's promise through Ezekiel, that he would give us new hearts and a new spirit, his very own. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, choosing to trust in him as Lord of our lives, we don't merely invite him to live in our hearts. We ask him to give us new hearts, hearts that are no longer corrupt, but cleansed and filled by the spirit of God. And he does. He gives us new hearts filled with the love of God. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son, then an heir through God. And here's what I want you to notice about the hearts that Jesus gives us. They are already filled with the love of God. His love for us. They're not filled with unmet longing or with fear or with uncertainty and insecurity. They aren't hearts that have a lot of potential. They are whole and filled with the love of the everlasting God. The treasure of our hearts, as Jesus puts it in Luke 6, is the love that God has for us. The words and deeds of a Christian person are the overflow or the abundance of his love. So how do we change? How do we learn to become better people? By receiving the gift of God's love in Christ and the new heart that comes with it. By marveling at his goodness, open-mouthed, stunned, in awe that the God of the universe sent his only son that he might shed his blood and so redeem us that we might spend eternity with him. By receiving God's inconceivable love through Jesus Christ and by loving him in return. When you've been given that kind of love, 
all of the other lesser loves and corrupt longings of your heart, they get pushed aside. And your greatest desire becomes simply to please and to honor the one who has loved you so well. That's where true change begins. I've said a lot this morning. What's the takeaway? Two things very briefly. First, take some time today, later in the week, to attend to your heart. What affections drive you to action? What love or loves are at the center of your life? How do your words and your deeds reveal what's going on inside you? And then second, take time to meditate on the love of God in Jesus Christ. Invite him to fill the empty spaces of your heart, to overwhelm you with his affection, to push out disordered affections. Let him be your treasure, that your life might abound with his love and with no other. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, would you pour out your love into our hearts this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you push out our disordered affections and the corruptions of our hard hearts? Would you make us new by the power of your Spirit that your love might abound in our lives and flow forth in godly speech and action that others might see your transforming power at work. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.